0: Welcome back to Leonard Birdsong Radio on TalkZone.com. Yes, this is Leonard Birdsong back with you on LeonardBirdsongRadio.com. I was a federal prosecutor in Washington D.C. for several years. My home was in Washington D.C. I wasn't born there, but lived most of my life there. I was considered a homeboy. Went to Howard University there. And when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, that's, those are the federal prosecutors. Generally, federal prosecutors just do federal crimes. But in Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, the federal prosecutors do the local crime as well as the white-collar federal crime. So as a result, we used to do bank robberies and drug deals and local murders and robberies and conspiracies. So you got a lot of experience. This story is called Judge Reggie Walton and Me. My first year in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I showed real promise. I had been in a law firm where I did civil work before I joined uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. as a federal prosecutor. So some people took me under their wing. Reggie Walton was a star in the U.S. Attorney's Office during my first year. He had been there several years. And uh, in my first year, he let me sit second chair with him in a murder trial so I could learn and see how it's done the right way. He didn't let me talk. He didn't let me ask questions. He made me carry the bags to court, which is a time-honored tradition. And I sat there, second chair, handing him documents when he needed them and things like that. That's what second chairs do. At any rate, it was a great experience in my first year to see my first murder prosecution as well as to be there sitting in the well of the court. Well, years later... Reggie Walton left the attorney's U.S. Attorney's office, and he became a D.C. Superior Court judge. That's a local judge in the local court. And then he went on to be a drug uh, deputy drug czar, and uh, then later was appointed to the federal court, and he still sits on the federal bench in Washington D.C. right now. But before he went to the federal court. He was still a D.C. judge and I was in private practice. And this was in about 1996 or 1997. Uh, I started teaching in 1998. Reggie Walton called me up and said, Birdsong, I want to appoint a case to you and I want you to handle this. It's going to be an insanity case. I know you've done insanity trials as a prosecutor and you know a lot about it. So I want you to get the file I have it here, come on over, my secretary will give it to you, get the indictment and go over to the jail and get this ready, get this guy ready for his insanity case. Well, I did all of that, and yes, I did know a lot about insanity. The last five homicide cases I handled before I left the office all had an insanity defense in them. Well, let me just tell you a little bit first about insanity. Insanity is not a medical term, it's a legal term. Being mentally ill is a legal term, but not a is it, being mentally ill is a medical term, but not a legal term but here 's what confuses students you can 't be insane without being mentally ill, but you can be mentally ill and not insane so the point is it's it 's a really crazy thing. I went down to the jail. I won't tell you the client's name. He was a twin. There were two of them, but this one was in jail. He was in jail on a murder charge, and uh, he wouldn't talk to me. Usually when you go down to the D.C. jail, you take the indictment down there, you read it to the client, and then you tell him this is what the government says. What do you say that happened? Well, I couldn't get his attention. As a matter of fact, he was a pretty good artist. He sat there with a sketch pad and a pencil, and he was drawing pictures of handguns while I'm trying to get through to him. I spent about 45 minutes, I knew I wasn't getting through, so I said, I'll be back next week to talk to you. So I went back to my office. About a week later, before I got back to the jail, he called and said, don't come back here, I don't want you as my lawyer. Well, I couldn't take that, so uh, you know, Judge Walton had appointed me to this case. It was my obligation to go back to the jail. So later that week, I went back to the jail later that week and tried to talk with him again. I had the indictment, wanted to talk about the case, told him what the government was telling or saying that allegedly he had done. He was still drawing handguns. Couldn't get through to him. Stayed with him an hour. Went back to the office. Next week, he wrote me a letter. The letter said, birdsong. Don't come back here. If you come back here, I'm going to kill you. Now, I still had my youngest child was in eighth grade at that time, and that was sort of shocking. I called up the prosecutor and said, uh, hey, we need to meet with the judge. I want to get out of this case. So we met with the judge, and I said, Judge Walton, the defendant has written me a letter saying he's going to kill me if I go back. Judge Walton said, well, you know, birdsong, these guys say all that kind of stuff. You've been in a lot of big cases. You go back there, and you get him this and start the insanity defense for him. Okay, Judge, Judge wouldn't let me out of the case. So I waited a couple of weeks, and I went back and tried to get through to him. Couldn't get through. He didn't want to talk to me. Got back to my office a few days later. Another letter from the D.C. jail saying, do not come back here, Birdsong, or I'll kill you. Again, I called up the prosecutor, said we need to get before the judge. I want to get out of this case. We got to the hearing before Judge Reggie Walden, and I said, Your Honor, please, you've got to let me out of this case. I still have kids in school, and this guy says he's going to kill me. He said, Birdsong, approach the bench. So I approached the bench, and he didn't want the whole courtroom to hear this. Prosecutor was there, too. He said, Birdsong, I'm going to let you out of this case. You know why? I know he wrote you a letter saying he'd kill you if you came back. But I'm letting you out of this case because he also wrote a letter to me that said, if you send Birdsong back again, he's going to kill me. So you're out of this case. So, I mean, (laughs) it was the craziest thing. But you don't usually get that with clients. But this fellow was really off his rocker. As it turns out, my knowledge, he never went to trial. Because he could never they could never find if he was competent to go to trial. But those kinds of things happen when you work in criminal law. Let me now turn to some more tidbit stories that came in that my research assistant sent me over the fax machine. I've got a couple of um, sad stories here. The headline on this one. Oldest in U.S. dies at 114. A New Jersey woman who was the oldest American has died at age 114. Adele Dunlop died Sunday in this month in, uh, in a hospital near Flemington, which is in New York State, according to the Martin Funeral Home. Nope, New Jersey. I'm sorry, it's New Jersey. She became the country's oldest person in July 2016 following the death of the 113-year-old Goldie Michelson of Worcester, Massachusetts. Now the oldest person is the 113-year-old Delphine Gibson of Huntington County, Pennsylvania. Dunlop's son Earl had no explanation for her longevity. She never went out jogging or anything like that, he said, noting that she smoked until her husband had a heart attack. I think she ate anything she wanted. All right, so that's so sad. Oldest woman dies. Now, some of you, and here's about about another death. I'm not reading the obituaries here. I'm just telling you some tidbit news that came in. Remember the comic Professor Irwin Corey? He was in the movie Car Wash and a lot of other movies. Comedian. Well, the headline reads, Curtains for Comic Corey. The story reads, Comedian Professor Irwin Corey, who billed himself as the world's foremost authority and, and entertained audiences in comedy clubs and on TV and stage with rambling and nonsensical commentary has died at the age of 102. Corey died at his Manhattan townhouse in uh, this month. The comedian's daughter-in-law, Lynn Corey, said Corey's double-talk shtick was uh, augmented by a shock of crazy hair, a tuxedo jacket with tails, a string tie, and high-top sneakers. He was hilarious. Sorry to have to say goodbye to comic professor Erwin Corey. I loved him in the movie Car Wash. Maybe some of you saw that. Well, now we're gonna have to take another break, but let me um say we've got a, a guest coming on. His name is Steve Klein. But let's let's read one more of these tidbit stories that the research assistants sent me. The headline Drugs in Toys Arrests. The story. A narcotics ring was busted Wednesday for using the U.S. Postal Service to smuggle millions in heroin and cocaine hidden in packages of children's toys and exercise equipment. Bronx-based ringleader Ariel Lopez Acosta and 12 cohorts were indicted for shipping 4.5 million worth of heroin and cocaine from Puerto Rico, disguised in items like child bracelet-making kits, and a box of purple dumbbells, according to the feds. As agents arrived to arrest Lopez Acosta, he unsuccessfully tried to flee. They reported seizing $100,000 in cash and 90000 in jewelry from his Nelson Avenue home in the high section of the Bronx. The arrests show no matter how clever smugglers think they are, Sooner or later, they knock on the door or the knock on the door won't be the mailman said federal agent Angel Melendez. Yep. The long arm of the law. Well, those are some news tidbits sent in. We're going to hear from Stephen A. Klein. He is the CEO of professional, of the professional development center. He speaks and facilitates internationally about the psychology of professional performance productivity, and results, which include leadership, coaching, team building, success skills, sales, and communications. He's written a book called Sell When You See the Whites of Their Eyes. I want to talk to him about human performance. We'll be back with you, so stick with us to hear from Stephen A. Klein.